Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. Our healthcare system is funded by taxes. So these are important, important things that our taxes paid. But I do believe in paying what we should pay, not more. This is The Real Bottom Line where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. Today, we're going to veer off our course a little bit and we're gonna do an Ask Me Anything episode. And The Real Bottom Line, I started it uh, primarily to start getting people to talk about numbers and to learn more about how to grow their business and to get comfortable with the idea that numbers are a beautiful, sexy thing and that they should love them and they should care for them and, you know, tend to them because they can do so much for us. So I see a lot of entrepreneurs who kind of avoid their numbers, uh, delegate off if they have to do it um, and not pay attention to them. And I think that if we can reframe numbers as our friends, that it can be very, very helpful. Because in many instances, I think what we've done is given too much power to our numbers, that they are actually a reflection of our self-worth, as opposed to just how our business is performing. So if we look at it as a scorecard, it tells us, hey, are we doing things uh, the way, that, are we making money? Because that is the goal of a business. You know, we can have altruistic and very socially conscious uh, goals as well, but at the end of it, it still has to be self-supporting and at some level support your life. So it's important that you start looking at your numbers. It helps you make decisions. It helps you evaluate. You know, if you're running a program uh, and you're doing it for the first time, at the end of it, you should take stock hey, what were all the costs that went in? What were some of the costs that I didn't think about that I probably should have covered and see how much was actually contributing to the bottom line on that. Also, we have a partner in our lives and our business that is sometimes silent and we never want to stir them. And that's CRA. So we always want to be up to date with our numbers so that we can keep our silent partner silent and happy and off in the corner where we want to stay. Because we do not want them calling us all the time asking us stuff because it can be quite disruptive. And, you know, like I said, it's meant to pay yourself because, you know, when I look at the real bottom line, um, it's not just about the profit that goes down to the bottom right? It's also about the quality of our lives. It's the quality of the things that we do that are funded by our business, because that is the real bottom line is how good is our life? How are we having fun? How are we spending time with our family, our community, and our goals, and all those things that we should look be looking at from a real bottom line perspective. <clears throat> so today, we are going to do an Ask Me Anything, and I was lucky enough to have some questions sent in advance. So I am going to work my way through them. So, and then at the end, I'll open it up again. So first question, 
accountant, bookkeeper, financial planner. What are these roles? How are they different? And how do you, how, and how do they work? What, what should I be looking for them in as a small business owner? And how do you find a good fit? So a very, very excellent question. So I look at the bookkeeper person um, as integral because they're the person that is taking all my invoices, all my expenses, all my little things, and they're entering it into an online, uh, to a program. So for example, we use uh, QuickBooks Online, which I love because our, our bookkeeper, we send her the stuff every month, she enters it in, and then I can go look at it anytime I want and run any report I want and that type of stuff. And so the bookkeeper keeps all those numbers up. The accountant will then also use those numbers. So I like to look at an accountant as my strategic partner in the sense that I like to use my accountant as the person who helps me figure out, hmm, uh, if I do it this way, this is what the taxes will be. If I do it this way, this is what the taxes are. And so that way I have some information to make decisions. And the goal being of course, to pay uh, the right amount of taxes based on what I'm doing. I am not someone that says we should avoid all taxes because obviously we're just coming out of a period that our taxes funded the recovery that we're going to see. And it kept a lot of people uh, alive. It kept a lot of businesses alive because we pay taxes. Our healthcare system is funded by taxes. So these are important, important things that our taxes paid. But I do believe in paying what we should pay, not more. So we look at that. So the accountant becomes your strategy. Uh, you know, should I, should I do a hold co? Should I do this? Should I do these things? What other elements do I need to structure myself so that I can do well today, but also be ready for any growth that I might have in the future? So that's how I look at an accountant strategy. Uh, at this point, uh, my accountant also uh, files all my taxes and things like that. But so I have my bookkeeper, I have my accountant and then the financial planner. So the financial planner is going to the, the right one. Uh, and I think that the, the question becomes the finding the right fit um, on the uh, financial planner in particular has to be somebody who understands business um, and has uh, a different mentality. Uh, I'm going to tell this story, but I was at a, um, uh, a business training session one time for uh financial advisors and planners, and it was about business insurance. And someone uh, at the table who'd been in the business a fair amount of time asked what the uh, joint registry of stocks was. And that's when I had my aghast uh, moment. And I'm thinking, if you don't know what that is, how are you advising business owners on other things? This is like such a key thing that everybody should know. So that was where I came up with the, you, you should try and find a financial planner that understands business if you are a business owner, because there are some unique things that uh, can come up and you wanna have someone who can give you the advice. So they're kind of the person that um, marries uh, up and that's the other person I would wanna see on your team is probably a really good lawyer because the lawyers can help you um, uh, if you're going to incorporate, if you are going to set up a hold co, if you're going to have uh, documents developed that are going to protect you like contracts and things of that nature. 
in business, we are going to have to sign contracts at times along the way. So having that resource that can take a look at that and tell you, are you protected? Or if you're signing a contract that someone else uh, sent to you, is it too one-sided? Is there anything on there that you should be aware of and worried about or concerned about and try and negotiate around? So I think those are your team. And the financial planner kind of in my personal opinion, can become the orchestrator of that in the sense that they can pull it all together because they're also looking at the whole big picture of your personal life, your business life, all those things, and they can help pull it all together and just make sure everyone's singing from the same hymn book. So when it comes to choosing which one is good, um, like for years and years and years, all I did use was a bookkeeper who could do my taxes because I didn't need a full-on accountant at that point. But then once business got bigger and I was doing more different things and different ventures, I wanted the strategy element. Now, it could be because I'm lucky that I have, I, I'm, I kind of geek out on taxes, so I kind of understand them. So I didn't need maybe as much strategy at the front end because I could do that myself. But then it grew to the point where I needed some more help from that perspective. So that's why I definitely added an accountant to the mix. Um, now, when it comes to your numbers, I do believe that you, if you're not uh, doing your bookkeeping yourself, and honestly, if you don't love it, um, you should understand it. Maybe you should, that should be your first, <laughs> first hire is your bookkeeper, if you will, your part-time bookkeeper, uh, someone to do your books, but you do need to have those done monthly at a minimum, if you're really small, maybe quarterly, but you should be getting your numbers on a regular basis. It should not be a, um, if at all possible to avoid the here's my shoebox at the end of the year that's overflowing with uh, things that are kind of a mishmash because you know there's a couple levels there one is if there was something wrong earlier in the year you did not find it until it's too late to fix two um you're going to pay more money because it's a mishmash and not sorted out and you're you're kind of pushing that work off and it's just going to add to your bill so, and then you don't, like I said, you don't have the right stuff to make those decisions. So again, that is one of those critical things that it is very, very important. When it comes to working with your bookkeeper, and uh, I think one of the critical, critical things that you need to figure out, whether that's with yourself, working with your financial planner, or working with a business coach, you need to figure out what you need to measure. Okay, so how that works out into is this thing called the chart of accounts, okay? And I hope you're all familiar with that, but that is the chart of accounts is all the little accounts that they're gonna put things into, you know? There's a line for business phone, there's a line for vehicle, there's a line for sales. Now, if you wanna track different levels of sales and you wanna track different products, you may have to set up different uh, divisions or something, or you have to figure out, I wanna measure, um, I sell uh, my book, uh, my book is um, um, Burn Your Budget, right? So I wanna measure um, how many sales I had of Burn My Budget. Well, then I need to put that on my chart of account as a book so that, it, that I'm measuring that and that it doesn't get lumped into all my sales, okay? So that's why the chart of account becomes super important because you wanna know what you're measuring. So that requires some real thinking about what's important to your bottom line the real bottom line, right? And also um, knowing that when you look at the numbers, sometimes when we haven't done the work on the chart of accounts, I think what happens is it becomes jibber jabber because we don't know what it's saying. 
and we don't know and we don't recognize anything in the chart of accounts as to being what I really want to know. So take the time to do the work up front on their chart of accounts is what I would do that. Okay. Oh, I love this next question. Gross versus net. How much of each contract dollar should be considered net in rough calculations? Aside from obvious costs, such as materials or subcontractor fees, how to project for such as taxes, business maintenance, business growth, anything else? And I think that's an excellent, excellent question. Um, one of the things I see sometimes is, um, you know, obviously pricing is a big issue. Uh, how do we price things? I think the first step before you can even start to think about pricing is understanding your costs. Okay, so there's a couple of levels there. If you've ever heard the term of cost of goods sold or COGS, these are the variable costs, meaning if I don't sell that thing, I don't have that cost. That's a variable cost of goods sold, okay? So I am always going to have to pay my internet bill, whether I sell that thing or not. So that becomes my fixed costs, okay? So when you break them down, the thing I need specifically to sell that, things that you should be putting into that COGS or cost of goods sold would be, again, uh, that was addressed in the question, but yes, your subcontractor, if you are hiring someone to help you deliver a service, then that should be as a cost of goods sold. If you are, uh, you're, if you're paying it by credit card, or if, they are, if your client is paying it by credit card, and let's say you're using Stripe, there's a 2.9% fee. That's a cost of goods sold that you should be adding into your numbers. So you need to be figuring about that. Uh, other things I like to think about, let's say you're doing a course or a program or something like that. Thinking about things like, okay, I am going to build this course and it's going to take me, how many hours of your time is it going to take to build that course? Well, that's a cost of goods sold. If I look at how much does it cost me to do my Facebook ads? Well, if I'm spending $100 a month to market that course, that's a cost of goods sold for that course because we also need to know, figure out how much it's costing us to get people in that course, because that is still a cost to deliver. So when we look at all those things, that's all your variable costs, things that are variable on that side. Then you have your fixed and you have to figure out how much of my fixed costs do I want to have covered in that product. If you only sell one thing, it's easy, it's 100%. <laughs> but if you sell a bunch of things, you kind of have to start figuring that stuff out. So that will help you get your base cost. I see what people forget a lot is the um, overhead costs, right? So they look at all the variable costs and then they add the price on, but they haven't taken into account how, much, how all these fixed costs that still have to be covered. I'm gonna, the, the language, so we've talked about cost of goods sold. The other piece that people, um, so the difference between your cost of goods sold and um, your price, they call that contribution margin. So how much of that is going to all your other stuff? So that's your that's kind of a way to help thinking about it um, on the number side. For your taxes side, um, uh, you, you there's two taxes that you really want to be paying attention to, and that's your HST and your income tax. And if you have people that you um, are putting through payroll, there's payroll taxes for EI and CPP and uh, federal taxes, provincial taxes. So they collect all that stuff from you as well. The interesting piece in particular, you want to be up to date on your HST. So you always wanna calculate that and your payroll taxes. Why? Um, in particular, you are personally liable. 
So if you have a, co a corporation, doesn't matter. You're personally liable for those those taxes. They will have to get paid. So always look after it. And our silent friend in the corner becomes quite angry, and um, and they do things like freeze accounts and stuff if you don't pay those bills. So they really want that money. Uh, for your business growth and thinking about that allocation, I think that's a good one too. And, and should you be pricing in a point of that, um, knowing what you want to do uh, in the future and how fast you want to grow, because growing fast costs a lot of money. It's a cash thing. And if, depending on how you're structured, if you're particular, like let's say you're in, a, I'm going to sell it today and it's a, they're going to pay me over the next year or they're going to pay me in 30 days. There's 30 days that you're funding that growth. So you want to be aware of uh, how much cash that is. Because if you go like this, all of a sudden your cash requirements go like that. And if you're not collecting the, cat, the bill up front, you may be uh, footing some growth for people. So keeping that in mind, because that go then reflects back to the terms and conditions that you do on your sales, right? So a lot of consultants, you'll see they'll charge 50% up front or, or whatever, because at least then they've got those costs covered. And then if something happens and they don't collect the second half, well, that was their profit, you know? So at least they're not going under because of one bill. So those were the some of the questions. Um, does any, let's open it up now. Um, has any other questions bubbled up from uh, any of your perspectives? Mm -hmm. All right, Melanie, bring it on. Um, I, when you were going through the question about bookkeeper, accountant, financial planner, and lawyer, um, so we're an early stage tech startup uh, SaaS model, so software yeah. as a service, um, and CFO came to mind. And like when, at what stage, I currently uh, do my own books. It's a pretty simple, relatively compared to other business models um, because it's a recurring revenue model. So I, it's easy for me on Excel right now and I'm moving over to a better software to do that piece. And yeah. um, for me, I do have an accountant who does you know end of year and personal taxes as well and helps me on that front. But I know, at, like when do I need a CFO? Because I understand as CEO, I really shouldn't be bookkeeping, and I, I guess that's my question. And do and as you know, a part of that, um, a CFO for hire, if you can get uh, to like the a fractional. Of, yeah. It, oh, what did you call that? Fractional. Fractional. Okay. okay I didn't know that was called fractional <laughs> CFO. Okay. Fractional, yeah. <laughs> Sounds nicer than for hire. <laughs> okay. Yes. So well, I think curious. your first step, Melanie, would actually be go to the bookkeeper first. I think you're going to find that oh, okay. oh hire, a, like get a bookkeeper to do your hire to yeah. do that stuff. I suspect in your business that there's probably a lot of little tricks that you could be doing to automate some of your stuff, because yeah. if you have recurring payments and things like that, you can probably have them going right into QuickBooks and all that stuff. So there's probably some tricks that would eliminate uh, 50 to 60 percent of your work right up front. Right. Thank you. And then when I have a bookkeeper, like at what stage would a CFO be advisable? Oh, a, uh, you know, I think you might have stumped me there, Melanie. I think it becomes when there's multiple, multiple, multiple different levels of financial questions that need to be asked. It mm. could be also um, probably for someone like yourself who's going probably for seeds of financing and rounds of financing and things like that. There's going to be a time when having that 
bench strength will be very, very important, right? Because of the rounds and stuff you're gonna do. So for you, it might be a function of, if I have a CFO to manage all these pieces, um, I'm gonna look better to my funders. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. If that helps. Yeah, it does. Yeah, okay, it really good. Does. yeah. thank you. Excellent. Um, any other questions? Uh, Christina, do you have a question? I am happy to be here um, and be taking all of this in. I didn't arrive with a specific question. I arrived more as a sponge, um, okay. but I will certainly let you know when a question comes up. Perfect. One of the other questions I get sometimes too is, um, should I, from a financial planning perspective, I get this a lot, should I pay down my debt or should I uh, save? Right. So, you know, we've got our business, it's functioning and we're getting paid all the time. And now we have personal debt, maybe that we incurred uh, to get that business going, maybe, or what have you. Um, and I, I like to look at it a couple ways. I like to look at how what the debt is look like. So is it a lot of 19.9%, 21% credit card debt? Then I may want to attack that a little faster. I also look at creating a savings habit. Because what I have seen in the past is a number of people come to me and say, but I just want to pay this off and then I will start to save. And so there's a couple things that happen there. One, we lose the beautiful thing of compounding our growth uh, through time because we've earned money on top of our money on top of our money. Compound interest is good when you're receiving it. And... Um, we lose that habit. So then the next thing we'd happens is I see that, um, oh, well, I finished that, I paid that off, but then I bought this and now I'm paying that off. And then, oh, now that I got to pay this off. So I think that's why I like to have the habit uh, started. I don't even care if it's $25 a week, just get into the habit and have a system around that. Christina, you have your hand up. Great. Yeah, thanks. So I, I thought of a question. So I've, I've read um, on the recommendation of somebody that was in a session of yours before, and I can't remember his name, but he recommended uh, Profit First. Oh, yeah. And yep. um, but by Mike Michalowicz. Um, and and I, I soaked that in times two. I read it uh, twice. Yep. And um, the audio version is really nice because he narrates it. Uh, but anyway, so so um, this this idea of taking a section out, he suggests your savings and your taxes to take them out and put them in another bank that is, you know, basically has guardrails at the at the front of it that you can't get into. Yeah. Um, so my question is, what 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 are some short term? I mean, is is this is a savings account with I don't know. I don't even know what they're offering these days. One to two percent interest, if, if even that. If even um, that. What, what are the good ways, safe ways to invest short term, maybe? And yeah. So I look at um, savings and investing as a continuum. So I think of when we're savings and do again term used very loosely, uh, high interest savings, um, as our first uh, short term bucket, and then we have our medium term. So what what when would we need this money, right? And then the long-term. So long-term stuff, I definitely think should be in the market, right? So at some level it should be in. 
stocks, bonds, ETFs, something like that, so that it has a potential to grow and appreciate um, so that you have money when you get to retirement. However, it's the medium to short-term buckets that we have to be aware of. So for example, if a client comes to me and tells me they want to buy a house within 12 months, I am not putting them in the market, all right? Because I would worry to death that the, that the day before they need the money is the day the market goes down 20% and now they don't have what they wanted, right? So we've got to take that, if the, the, the timeline of when you need your cash is super important to realize, right? So in the middle, if it's a two to three year time frame when you need the money, then I might go in the market, but I'd be super conservative on that because I would not want it. I might want it to have small appreciation that's greater than 1%, but we also have to evaluate, is it worth taking the risk on that, right? So for example, we have some people, some clients who uh, got the, uh, the bank loan through the pandemic, you know, the get 60, pay back 40 if uh, you pay it by next uh, December of 2022. So they have the 40 uh, and we're figuring out and that's going to go in a very short term bucket because we want to make sure that they have that cash when uh, and it's available if something comes down and they need it. Right. Because that's why we all went and got it is that in case something happened and we needed it, it's there. So it's still accessible and it's not it's safe and uh you know we're not worried about it losing a value before it's before we need it does that answer your question christina kind of so so short term like for money that that i will be used within the year what yeah. would you suggest where should that money sit yeah, because if you look at your tax account, so we're following profit first as well, and we use a high interest corporate savings account for that money. So when we shove it over, we shove it over into a corporate savings account. Um, so again, it's out of, it's in a different bank and it's in a different thing. So it's away from our plate, but it's still earning some money. Uh, typically, I'm going to tell you, it's not at your regular <clears throat> banks, okay, because I just looked up all their stuff because um, I was trying to find the best rate for my client. And honestly, you're gonna go to a different bank. You're gonna go to a Manulife bank. You're gonna go to an EQ bank or something like that to really get your numbers. Now, I have a call into EQ to see if they will do corporate money, but I don't know that they do. So it may be a Manulife bank because Manulife bank has corporate savings accounts. They only pay 0.45%, but every other bank, if depending on the amount you have, it is only paying 0.2 or 0.1. So it's still a better deal. Okay. So it's all relative. Interesting. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Um, and we can help just, you set that up if you're doing that. So. Right. Okay. Um, oh, I just had another question a minute. Lead it away. Um, so bank oh, accounts. Oh, you're thinking I'll go to Colleen because Colleen, you okay. unmuted. Yeah, sorry. Do you have a question? Well, when you're talking about this, I'm thinking about tax-free savings accounts. Yes. Um, how could you utilize? I have one with like a hundred bucks in it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I haven't used it in a long time. And I'm thinking, well, should I be using that account? Um, hmm. Putting money in. Sometimes what I do is I do have a, an account. I call my it's not even set up as a savings. Actually, it's my mother's estate account. And now that's settled so but i just maintain the what account what am i gonna do now <laughs> so i keep i keep that's what i consider in my head my savings 
And, um, but kind of when my cash flow gets tough and I know I'm going to get money next week, but I need money today, I kind of borrow out of that account. And when I get paid, I pay it back. So it's easy. It's easy to reach. So I like the idea of using maybe a different bank too, where it's a little harder to quite so easily dabble in your savings. Right. Um, Having a day or two for the money to get back over can be, uh, um, it forces you to plan. <laughs> and <Yeah>. two, <laughs> um, it also adds that barrier where you're like, oh man, do I, if I really want that, do I want to go do that? You know? So um, I think it's important. Uh, on tax-free savings accounts, honestly, in my heart of hearts, I would wish that people would use more of them for investing. So I think the name is a little misleading. I think it should have been called the tax-free investment account. I think there's so much money that's tied up in tax-free savings account because uh, the perception being is that it has to be a savings account. So everyone's using high interest accounts versus, um, uh, you know, going into the markets and stuff because all the growth is protected. And when, so if you put in the hundred dollars into Let's say you bought Apple when Apple was $100, Colleen, and now you're a multimillionaire. No, just joking. But anyway, it's all in your tax-free savings account, which means everything that you pull out of that tax-free savings account does not get taxed. So it is a very critical vehicle for uh, savings for the future. So if we could do most of it long-term, that would be where I would want to be. Because if you think about a tax-free savings account earning 1%, versus a tax-free savings account earning five, six percent in the market, at one percent, the amount of tax you're saving is so little. Why bother? Okay, good. That's my theory. Anyway, you can use it a bunch of ways. I know people, a lot of people do use it exactly the way you talked about, Colleen, um, and it doesn't mean it's not the right way. It's just um, from my, perf and I know clients who use that what that way, but what I would try and do is go, uh, once our short-term needs are met, I would open up another account where I could put market stuff in. Okay. Yeah. Good. Christina, you remember your question. I did. Thanks. Uh, um, and that was really great too. That was another question I had. So thanks for asking that, Colleen. Um, it, through a, a, another course that I'm taking through the Women in Business, um, I'm learning about credit rating. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding this really interesting. Um, because if you um, profit first, they recommend, you know, that you set a limit on your credit card and you and you pay it down and then reduce your limit. Now that affects your credit rating, which is not good. Yeah. So sometimes good advice, which mm -hmm. is good for habits, is actually not good advice for your credit rating as a credit rating score, which I learned I can get for free on my BMO app. I didn't know, but I can get it anytime I want on my BMO app. Yeah. Um, so I wondered if you could speak to credit rating and well, your thoughts on that. Credit rating is, is uh, becoming more and more and more important because um, I have heard conversations. I don't think this is happening yet in Canada. I know, I think I'm pretty sure it's happening in the States is that depending on where you live and what your credit rating is, it could affect your insurance rates, right? Um, already, if you want to rent an apartment or anything like that, people are pulling your credit bureau. Some employers want to look at your credit bureau before they will hire you. So these are all really important reasons that we want to keep our credit rating really high. So as you said, Christina, sometimes there's an ideal 
in the sense of I don't need this credit anymore. Why would I? Um, but if I would venture out that if you have good habits in the sense that you pay it off, you don't you don't charge it. It's not something that you are using as a way to finance things over long term. You have the money and maybe it's just a I'm going to use it because it's easier to buy with this than to go into my bank account or get the cash out. That's a different thing, right? So if you have control of your spending and have a process for that, then um, you shouldn't be getting yourself into trouble. The other piece is as, as business owners, I am hesitant to reduce any of my credit at any point because I don't like when I, if something like a pandemic hits again and I need access to capital, no one's given it to me when I need it. They're only gonna give it to you when you don't need it. That makes sense. Yeah, that's really good to know, and I'm happy to hear—not happy, but I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm, uh, empowered to hear about what you're saying about credit ratings becoming more important. That was sort of the sense that I had. Yeah. And uh, yeah, wow. Okay. So, so factoring that into financial decisions and planning is 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 actually really important. Finding out the rhythm of your of your credit and when the credit is actually scored every month and yeah, yeah, it's things, a bit yeah. of a delicate ba balance. Yeah. Um, and so one of the other things, so I use um, BorrowWell myself right now, and they send me every week an updated credit. I'll actually on Credit Karma and BorrowWell. So they email me every week with my updated credit. So I'm on top of that. At a minimum, you need to go in and look at your credit probably quarterly, at least. I used to say annually, but there, when, when you think about identity theft or things going on there, what you don't want to see happen is, is that... I need to get uh, a credit approval for this big thing. It's awesome. And then you go, oh, and you get rejected or declined because there's something wrong on your bureau. And that stuff takes time to clean up. So you always want to be up on what's going on on your bureau um, because it can, it can be pivotal about what happens. I mean, your interest rates on your mortgage, the interest rates you pay for your vehicles, everything is tied into that funny number. That really doesn't make sense if 800 is the best. Anyway, moving on. Um, Melanie. Um, yeah, just on the piece of credit ratings, I know I'm, I also uh, get credit on, on Credit Karma. So, and also like Christina, when I learned about that, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of like misinformation out there. So this is really helpful. But for your business, how do you assess your business's standing? There's a Dun and Bradstreet is like the business credit bureau. Um, depending on where you are in life uh, and in your status of your business, your personal is completely tied in anyway, right? Okay. You could have the most beautiful, pristine track record as a business, and no one's giving you money if your personal one isn't great. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I have seen this. Uh, companies who may regularly making over 2 million a year, they're still personally guaranteeing everything. So, um, you know, that's another thing is that your traditional financers do not look at you as separate from your business. You are your business. So you have to keep that in mind as well. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. yeah. At what point then in a business, does it I really shift? don't know, Melanie. I don't because I don't understand it sometimes just yeah. how the banks assess us. I think I probably... feel like we have to fit in a little box. And yeah. um, if you don't fit in the box, I, I swear you have your pinky over the side of the box, you're done. So <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> yeah, that's helpful. That's good to know. Thanks. Yeah. That's cool. I have a question about foreign currency. Oh, here we go. <laughs> okay, well, I import raw materials um, mm -hmm. from a few suppliers in the US. And um, they have all switched in the last year. Um, I had open accounts with them and I would just pay them in 30 days. And I had a US bank account here and I would just send them a check. They don't want to do that anymore. They don't want to even, if they accept a credit card, they're charging three and a half percent. So um, I don't know what the US rules are for that. And then, so now one of them, like most of my orders are between five and 10,000 a month for each yeah. place. So for me to pay up front, and then for them to release it, ship it, and me receive it, it actually, I just landed product here this week that I paid for a month ago before, and it took a month to arrive in my warehouse. So now for me to sell it, it's going to be another month before I get any. So I have a lot of calculations to add into my cost of goods right? sold. So it's not just the, you know, the brokerage fees and the transportation costs either. So it's all this financing and waiting. Um, yeah. So I'm just trying to figure out. Um, so they did offer me, um, gave me bank information to send a wire transfer. Mm -hmm. Okay. I go to my bank and they're closed to three o'clock. It's like, well, frig, I missed that. So I emailed and asked my banker, can they just do it for me? Here's the information. So they went to do it and the information of the bank that was the beneficiary bank is actually in Argentina. So, oh my God. So that kiboshed that idea. So like the, I just keep running into all these obstacles. There's gotta be an easier way to purchase from the US and pay. Um, I don't know, or I don't know whether this is all, um, my suppliers all seem to be a little bit, um, I don't know, COVID has caused them to be very disrupted. Okay. So these are suppliers I've dealt with for a long time, like some of them 15 years, never had an issue with ordering, shipping and receiving. And now I am getting things that are on a back order for three months. Yeah. But you, you have, have to pay as much. I have to pay it in advance to place the order. And it's like, are they that volatile in their own finances that they have to do that? So it makes me feel very nervous about the stability of my supplier. And should I be looking for other suppliers? But some of my products are chemicals and yeah. dangerous goods to ship. So it's not an easy task. Um, but I just wish there was some easier way to handle paying in U.S. currency. I, I think that's a great question. I put in the chat a company that I know that uh, some people will use for exchange because it's cheaper. The other thing is, is I'm going to take that question away uh, about how to best pay U.S. suppliers. Um, we, we did just pay something in U.S. dollars, but they were a Canadian company. So it's a bit different than... Uh, that we're using a thing called Pluto um, as our payment intermediary right now. It's saving us all our Stripe fees and all that other stuff whenever we can use it. Um, so I'll, I'll put in the show notes when this comes out a link to Pluto and uh, so you guys can take a look at it. 
um, but it, it's helped us because we were always looking for how do we, because we, we've done some stuff where we charge in US dollars or that we have to pay in US dollars. So what's the easiest way to do that? Um, and so Pluto seems to be an interesting intermediary that's working for us. And I would also encourage you to check out this Knightsbridge FX because it seems that um, uh, it could be of help too, potentially. Excellent. Not an easy answer, not an easy answer. <laughs> Do ABC, I think, but here's some resources that may help you with that journey. Thank you. You're welcome. Awesome. I think we'll take one more question if anyone has one. These have all been almost mostly tax and accounting questions. It's cool. There you go, Melanie. Here you go. Um, Send us out with a bang, girl. Oh God, pressure. Um, tip pricing for your business. I would like to hear maybe some of the common mistakes. You touched on one where we're not taking in the full costs, right? We're taking in like what we see as obvious costs, but we're not uh, perhaps factoring in running costs. Um, are there any other big kind of pricing mistakes that you notice that your um, small business clients make? I think, I think the big mistake I see is letting our our mind and, and tying up what we think people will pay for our time or our value into it versus what is the value of what I'm actually um, putting out there. Um, and, and honestly, like, I think we're all worried sometimes that if we price at a too high and one person says no, um, <laughs> you know, uh, then, oh my God, it doesn't work. Whereas there are sets of people who will pay for the value of what you're providing at a price that works for you and your business, um, if it's properly presented and if it's properly structured and the value is there, right? We know the value is there. We know the value of what we're doing, uh, but sometimes we let ourselves get caught up with, well, you know, someone else down the road does it for $5 cheaper, so I have to match their price. Right, so then your differentiators become really important. Like why, yeah. what is, yeah. like really show your value and be confident in that, which I suppose. I know this sounds crazy, but um, uh, Zig Ziglar, did anyone ever remember him? He used to write all these sales books. I know the name, but yeah. 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 And one of his quotes was um, the joy or the, the win of a low price is very quickly forgotten after all the quality issues come to line, right? So <laughs> I know that's, that's not word for word, but that's the concept, right? You can win, people can feel like they win when they get a low price and then greatly re regret it when it doesn't deliver what they want it to do or it's um, not. Which is tricky when you're starting out, especially with, with for us, we're, we're a completely new type of service in mm. this space. So, there's a little bit of an education piece and it is on us to kind of, because people will think, oh, okay, which makes sense. Oh, you're like this. Well, yeah. kind of, but that we also do this and that's how we're different. But when you're starting out and you don't have that credibility and you're, you're figuring out your service and your value, you start at a lower price. And then, mm -hmm. so what we've done is we, we started off at like a, like an early bird price. And then, and that's, um, uh, you know, that's locked in, that's grandfathered in. If you sign on on that, you're in. Uh, now we have a founding member's price. Um, but I am aware that that might, that will need to increase over time. And then there's all that tension that you talked about. We are a social enterprise as well. And, and we're servicing people who we can't, we don't want to, we're trying to solve that problem, but how expensive it is to market. 
and well, the other, small the business. Other, so. And you have to make money, Melanie, right? You so have let's to be make honest. Money. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> when we marry all that together, right? Um, part of the mindset piece is, is that if you don't charge enough, the business goes away and there's no, no one gets the benefit. True. Right. So if we look yeah. at it from that perspective, if you're spreading good in the world, which you are, then you have to, you still have to be able to fund that you can spread the growth and the joy around the world. So you have to be able to fund that. Yeah. Um, and the right mission statement will do it. And I love the founder's price. And maybe um, you could even use that as a way to incent people that you only accept 100 founding members or 50 founding members. And then the price goes up to X or, you know what I mean? Like there's ways you can play with that also. Yeah, and like even in a, in a new market, like the first, so many get the founding price in that new market. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay thank you. Thank you for listening to The Real Bottom Line. This show is produced by Black Star Wealth. Executive producer, Wendy Brookhouse. To learn more about the show or to contact us, go to blackstarwealth.com.